Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the fuck tuplets? What? Yeah, how's it going? You guys, the what the fuck tuplets. Hey, it's Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? John Lithgow is here. Yeah, yeah, the John Lithgow. What is your first memories of John Lithgow? Scary, right? Usually 90% of the time, unless you grew up with Third Rock. I didn't. But uh, for me, I think it's probably, um, uh, could it possibly be blowout? Oh, maybe it is. I, I, I just know it was, it, he can be a little scary. Even when he's not being scary, he's a little intense. He, like he's intense any way you slice it. When he's scary, it's really fucking scary. When he's nice, he's really fucking nice. And when he's scared, he's really fucking scared. Great actor, no doubt. Great actor, thrilled to have him. Uh, so he's here. What else do I need to tell you? I would like to encourage you to uh, get tickets to my London show. I'm not begging, but it would be nice. I was there, maybe I was there a year or so ago, and now I'm back at Royal Festival Hall, April 6th, 2019. That's uh, this week. And uh, it's a 7.30 p.m. show. I believe there's still tickets left. I think Birmingham, there's a few left. I know Manchester sold out. Birmingham on the 8th is... Uh, there might be a few left there. Vicker Street in Ireland, Dublin, April 11th. I hope that those, I think there's a few left. Don't oh, know. And then I've got dates coming up in uh, San Diego, in uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, in Burlington, Vermont, in St. Louis, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And some more dates will be added. You can go to WTFPodTour.com. Is that right? WTFPod.com slash tour. That'll get you those links. So look, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm going to read some emails because I'm doing this a few days before I leave. You're listening to this on Monday, probably. So I recorded it a few days ago, like the day before I left for New York. It's, I don't need to confuse things, but it's not last night. It's a few nights ago because I'm traveling tomorrow. I'm trying to pack. I'm trying to pack for the Europe trip because I only, I want to, all I want to take is a carry on because checking bags is such a fucking mess and you just don't know what the fuck is going to happen but i'm going to be gone for a while so uh how do i pack like look all right i'll just do laundry i'll do laundry on the road and even though i got a little cash in the bank i'll probably go to a fucking laundromat if i can find one you know why because uh i don't mind spending a few hours at a laundromat i don't mind engaging with just sitting there looking at the dryer thinking about how clean my clothes are going to be and just like like i'm doing something out in the world 
That's yeah, you know, I should do more of that. We should all do a little more laundromat stuff. So, you know, I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. I'm willing to admit my my mistakes most of the time, stubbornly. Sometimes I'll hold on to them for a little while. Depends, but uh, in a second, I'll I'll address some apparent mistakes. But uh, this one was uh oh, this was just a question from who's this from EW. Uh, subject line, how do you know? Hey, Mark, I'm listening to you interview that actor who plays the Punisher, John Bernthal. You were asking him about self-doubt. I was listening to you push the topic and push the topic and push the topic. I was beginning to feel uncomfortable. I just felt uncomfortable when you wrote that three times. Just then, you switched to asking him about meeting his wife. How did you learn when to switch topics? It seemed like a great time to switch. It felt like you squeezed the lemon right to the edge, then switched. I know I will get stuck in a topic when talking to people. There seems to be a real art to jumping from topic to topic. Any tips? Thanks, EW. Yeah, when, when, you, when you're when you looking at them as you're saying the thing uh, over and over again, and they appear annoyed or glazed over or they kind of shut down, or they don't hold your gaze anymore, or they walk away, or they just look at you like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Those are all indicators of time to switch topics. Also, this is an indicator. If they say, could you quit, quit asking me that? that that's an indicator. Uh, or this one, what the fuck are you talking about? That's a sure sign that you might want to move on. Uh, or how about this one? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel comfortable talking about that with you. Yeah, but see, like, the thing is, is like, you can read all of those things that I just said on someone's face if you're paying attention. Uh, You can also, like, there are faces for fuck you. There are faces for I don't want to answer that. There are faces for um, uh, not comfortable. You know, it's a mixture. But I'd say one of the tips is if they say shut up or move on or or don't talk to me about that, that's a good time to, to not talk about it anymore. Here's another email, Rob Lowe interview subject line. Hey, Mark, I've enjoyed just about all of your 1,000 podcasts. So this is coming from a fan. During your interview with Rob Lowe, I noticed a derisive tone in your voice whenever you discussed his new gig as a game show host. In fact, there was a good amount of contemptuous laughter on your part, which your guest gracefully ignored. Of course, you have every right to judge someone for their choice of occupation, but during those parts of the interview, I think you came off sounding like a dick. Still a big fan? Carl, P.S., 100%. Well, Carl, you're 100% misreading that. Uh, Mr. Lowe and myself uh, had a nice time. Sometimes I change tones to uh, to sort of more connect with the guest, and I thought Rob Lowe could take a little ball busting, which he could. You didn't see him smiling. You didn't see him laughing. He's got to sell the show. He can't, you know, look, I know how he feels. We know how he feels. I mean, it, it might be a great show, but come on, man. It's a giant mechanical arm that's throwing people around, stops in front of questions. Give me a fucking break, dude. It's not a matter of judgment. It's bizarro and funny. And yeah, I was slightly derisive with Rob Lowe because that's what it, that's what it required for us to fucking have a good conversation. Just trust me a little bit. Jesus Christ. Is this derisive, Carl? Is, does this, how does this feel, Carl? And because I don't think this is derisive, I think this is annoyed. If I'd be like, if I'd be like, come on, hey, Carl. I mean, are you are you like really? You're you're mad about me making fun of uh, of the game show, Carl? Are you Carl? Are you seriously seriously? Are you are you really upset with me because I made fun of the giant arm amusement park game show that Rob Lowe is is hosting? You're are you really? Come on, Carl. I mean, really? How'd that sound? 
I think that was more what I was doing, and I and I I have no problem with it. Uh, here's one language landmine. So this is where we get into making mistakes, as we do, especially if you're old, older, old enough to be set in some bad habits, perhaps, or the ones that you don't even know you have. Dearest Mark, in your intriguing interview with the charming Phoebe Robinson, both of you used words that could certainly be offensive to native peoples. You said off the res to describe somebody having a possible psychotic break. And she said tribe referring to belonging to a group. I'm not in any way politically correct or a ball buster. And I was not personally offended. However, I thought you would find it interesting how even those of us who are trying have yet to parse the institutionalized racism against our most marginalized groups from our casual language. That is a fine sentence. The fuckery of our cultural legacy is embedded in the very words, no matter our intent. Thanks for all you do. I enjoy virtually hanging out with you and your guests twice a week. You feel like a good friend I've never met, and listening to you has helped me know myself better and grow. Sincerely, Daniel. Uh, Okay, you're right. Language is important. Language is powerful. Uh, Language uh, can do good things. It can do bad things, but it does get in there and dictate you know, movement of culture, it dictates a lot of things, especially through through repetition. And uh, I get it. These things can evolve. But when I read yours, I was like, yeah, I, I kind of understand what he was saying. Then I got this email. Off the res, four question marks. Glad I stuck with listening to the full show. Surprised to hear you say off res. The interview with Phoebe was so thoughtful. Surprised you made the comment in real time after that interview. Think you need to address the comment. K. Okay, okay, I know now. Off the res is not good because it's offensive to native peoples. I'm sorry. I will not say it anymore. Not a problem. It's out. I removed it. But these two emails were reasonably toned. And I think that uh, obviously I can't expect much from bullies on the right, but I can't expect something from bullies on the left in the sense that if you if there is a teachable moment or whatever they call it then do it teach it i mean don't condescend and belittle and and indict somebody for for you know saying something that they may not have known was wrong uh, it, it feels good i know there you know there's a lot of hopelessness and powerlessness uh, in progressive people right now but that doesn't mean you need to you know condescend bully or indict people for things they might not understand. You know, it, it just say these two emails were reasonable and they weren't like, um, you fucking idiot, you fucking racist, you fucking piece of shit. Don't you know what you just did? No, I didn't. I didn't know. And if you talk to me like that, uh, I'm not going to keep doing it, but I'm probably going to just shut down and uh, not really take it in and then secretly resent you and think you're a condescending self-righteous douchebag even though I get what you're saying you know I'm 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 not going to like the way you said it and who the fuck are you to talk to me like that so if there is a teachable moment I was just talking to somebody I made up in my head by the way uh you know teach it teach it nicely teach it empathetically teach it like you know like somebody who cares All right, look. Oh, you know what? I didn't get to talk about this. Last week, my congressman, Adam Schiff, did an amazing thing in uh, hearing in Congress, uh, sitting next to a bunch of um, Republicans and just just really giving it to him. 
just talking about it was sort of like you had to watch it go look it up adam schiff uh you know uh amazing sort of almost rabbinical rant uh in the hearing there in congress about russia and he says it's not okay and and like all it was really missing being a jew and having grown up you know going to synagogue sometimes in congregation it really felt like a classically jewish responsive reading um it just it, it just it felt like that here, it, it, I actually found the text of it, and it, I swear to God, it will work. They should; it, it would be perfect for synagogue. My colleagues might think it's okay that the Russians offer dirt on the Democratic candidate for president as part of what's described as the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. Then the congregation goes, "It's not okay." You might think that's okay, congregation. It's not okay. My colleagues might think it's okay that when that was offered to the son of the president, who had a pivotal role in the campaign, that the president's son did not call the fbi he did not adamantly refuse that foreign help no instead that son said that he would love the help with the russians you might think that's okay it's not okay that he took that meeting it's not okay you might think it's okay that paul manafort the campaign chair someone with great experience running campaigns also took that meeting it's not okay you know what i'm talking about you know what they the, the rabbi says something then the congregation answer you know what Thank you, Adam Schiff. He's a nice guy. I think he's a vegan because of uh, cholesterol issues. Anyways, listen, John Lithgow is here. He uh, He's in the new film adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which opens this Friday, April 5th. He's also on Broadway with Laurie Metcalf in the play Hillary and Clinton at the Golden Theater. It's in previews now, and opening night is April 18th. Enjoy, Mr. Lithgow and myself. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or need Needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts okay so you're wearing a steppenwolf jersey and i know why you do know why yes i do why how, how do you know because i'm working with Lori metcalf right oh now. that's right <laughs> she'd left her steppenwolf jersey her, her hoodie in my old garage by mistake or yeah and it was her favorite thing uh-huh and uh, it was sort of a thing you know and because she was doing uh the 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 play on broadway the women what is it three, oh uh, yeah the three tall women three tall women and she was very upset that she'd left her hoodie and i arranged to have it sent to her asap <laughs> so she yes. could have it and i told the story on the show and they sent me one Great. Well, I mean, what what is it what, when you when you think about Steppenwolf as a stage actor, you know, because like in my mind, it, it's just sort of like there's an intensity, man. There's like there, you know, you yeah. think of Malkovich, 
and you think of like even the next generation or Joan Allen and Tracy and and Lori yeah, yeah. there's this intensity there's this rawness there's a you know and it, and it's sort of a, a a school of thought yeah it's kind of like the Chicago school they they brought those productions to New York in yeah. the late 70s yeah. and it was like this brace. Steppenwolf did yeah yeah this bracing breath of air from Chicago there's this there's a certain defiance about it. The Windy City. Yeah. The Angry Wind. When I was uh, in high school, there was a, a big hit show yeah. on Broadway called uh, From the Second City. Yeah. And it was- A review? It was It was the Second City Review yeah. with Alan Arkin and Barbara Harris. Wait, and, when you were in high school in Ohio? No, in I, I, I went to lots of schools, but I finished high school in Princeton, New Jersey. So you were in New Jersey, yeah, and that was sort of just the Second City Review would have been just post the Compass Players, yeah, right. And they came to New York and performed on Broadway and made this smash hit, but they would come down to Princeton on Monday nights, yeah, their night off, Busman's yeah. holiday, yeah, uh, so they could just improvise instead of doing a polished Broadway show. And you saw and there I was in a tiny theater. I saw Alan Arkin when he must have been about twenty nine years old. Oh my God! And. Was it? Com- it was all comedy. Oh yeah, it was just flat out hilarious wow. and and very interactive improv. It yeah, was yeah, just yeah. not polished at all. Right. I was in like the second row of this like 150 seat theater. Yeah. On the Princeton University campus. Yeah. I was just a high school kid. Well, I mean, were you acting in high school? Yeah, I mean, I was acting and acting and acting. Yeah. I was in a theater family. Uh, I grew up. My dad produced. A regional theater. So Where? Mainly in Ohio in yeah. the 50s and 60s. He created Shakespeare festivals. There's this... What part of Ohio? Uh, Yellow Springs, where Antioch is. Uh, I lived in Waterville, outside of Toledo. Were you, were you born in Ohio? No, I was born in Rochester. Rochester. Did you spend time in Rochester? No. No. I was gone by two years old. Yeah. To Ye- Yellow Springs is... The closest I have yeah. to a hometown, although it only lasted till I was about 11. Why all the moving? Well, my dad was a theater producer, and they kept on- Well, that's go- not the military. It was <laughs> like the opposite of a military brat. <laughs> it was a theater rat uh-huh. uh, upbringing. And the, his legacy theater is the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland, which still goes on. He started it in 1962 as the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival. Wow. So you, how did he start in it? Was he an actor, or he, he was? Always- he acted and directed, but principally he was the artistic director of all these theaters, and he ran the McCarter Theater at Princeton for about ten years. Uh huh. When I, round about the time, I, the first pro job I had, I mean, with an equity contract, playing yeah. proper roles, was working for my dad at McCarter. Yeah. How old were you? That was about twenty-four years old. But but you so you grew up in the theater, mm-hmm. just wandering around the theater. Was your mom involved? Just as a kind of uh, keeping it all together. She had started out acting, but yeah. I never saw her act. She uh-huh. had quit. We, Except she had as four, a mother, she had four kids. I mean, we were a real gypsy wagon. Wow! And she just kept it all together. And uh, like your dad would just pull up stakes and say, "We're going here." There, I gotta. Sometimes he pulled up stakes. Sometimes he was run out of town. Uh, sometimes he got a bigger, better gig, and we moved on. Why would he be run out of town, John? Uh, well, the theater would go belly up, uh-huh. and they they hadn't paid their payroll taxes or whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Or well, none of which I knew about as a kid. We just. 
you know, we just packed our suitcases and got into the station wagon. And was it, it seems like he was on some sort of mission. There must have been some sort of belief in the magic of it that uh, oh. Shakespeare was necessary for people to, to be he, decent or something. He absolutely loved Shakespeare. He was a... He was a kind of shy, isolate kid, as I, as I, that's the lore in our yeah. family. Uh-huh. And somewhere around 15, 16 years old, he discovered Shakespeare and read the entire canon huh. start to finish. Have you? No. <laughs> Come on. It's like reading the dictionary. Uh, but he was passionate about it, and he so fervently believed in it. Uh, let me describe his most successful venture with yeah. Shakespeare. It was about an eight-year-long Shakespeare festival in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, this troupe of actors who would perform outdoors on the main building right in front of this big, beautiful Victorian Gothic brick building. It was, it was a, like a, a, an extension, an extended it, porch or something? It was. It, they sort of built a unit, <laughs> uh, a unit stage, uh-huh. and in the course of a summertime... They would open seven Shakespeare plays in nine weeks, rehearsing in the day, performing at night. And once all seven of them, seven, yeah, they opened them all, then they ran them in ro- ro- rotating repertory, a different play every night of the week. So he had a, a Shakespearean company. Yeah. Of and they people. were mainly uh, young, fresh out of the oven uh, graduates of Carnegie Tech. Now Carnegie Mellon, okay, and really good actors. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you probably wouldn't have heard any of them, their names now, but uh, theater actors in the '60s and '70s. These were the major. Oh yeah, guys. they went on I, to be the big guys. They were just tremendous, and, and I, you know, I always thought how how good could this possibly have been? Yeah, and, you know, just throwing together a shake an entire Hamlet in one week, right? Uh, you know, when I became a young and pretentious young actor, I sort of dismissed it in my own memory. And someone sent me a reel-to-reel tape of one of the productions. Really? Like Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, Just out a, of nowhere? A, a, someone... a comedy yeah. where not a single joke is comprehensible to a modern audience. <laughs> and you heard these young actors performing out of doors, no amplification. Yeah. And the audience roaring with laughter, and the acting was fantastic. It high energy, fast as lightning, and yeah. with incredible diction. Uh, it was just exhilarating. And sure enough, it created this incredible success over many years. People would come from all over the country to spend a week and see in Ohio. Seven, you know, yeah, Southern Ohio. It's weird because, uh, you know, not to be condescending, but you don't hear about Ohio being a cultural mecca well, anymore. There are, listen, you, cr- you, you know, you're, there are pockets you cross sure. this country, it's amazing how, it's many, how many pockets there are. Yeah, there's just like, you know, it's, see, like it's easy to do what, you know, what I just did is just where you draw these lines where like that yeah. state. But, yeah, but I know, but I mean, the, no, no, this these Shakespeare festivals people. still exist all over the place in Utah yeah. and... Yeah, God knows San Francisco and, you, and, and Ashland, Oregon. That, that that's went, a big place. That's yeah. a big, big deal. Yeah. over the years. And what, what's your relationship with Shakespeare outside of not having read the the canon? I mean, I've 
I've talked a lot on this show with people about how I just can't, it's hard for me to access. Yeah. And then uh, Sir Ian McKellen did it to my face. Mm-hmm. He did Shakespeare right <laughs> yes. to my face. Did it bring you around? Yeah. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, I, I understood it. I felt the emotions of it. I can understand it. It's, uh, you know, if I listen, but it's staying in the pocket. You, you ha- the- Yes. Yeah, so you have to give it time and you have to, you have to understand about a Shakespeare play when you go to see it. Yeah. You, you got to know if, the story. If you're seeing it fresh, you're not going to understand the first half hour. Right. And then bit by bit, the yeah. story emerges and you begin to appreciate what a great storyteller he was. Right. But the trick of Shakespeare is, uh, look, he was a poet. Yeah. I mean, and he had all these devices yeah. for captivating an audience. Yeah. A lot of it had to do with the beauty of the language. Right. But if you see pretty much any Shakespeare play, some of it is in verse mm-hmm. and some of it is in prose. Right. Tends to be uh, a sort of class system. Right. The, the noble characters will speak in verse. Oh, yeah? And the supernumeraries, the the bit parts. The rabble. Like, like the grave digger in yeah. Hamlet. Yeah. They're, they will, they'll talk colloquial language. And it, it's the language of 400 years ago. So yeah. you have to, it's like watching a, f- a French movie with subtitles. Yeah. You you sort of gradually be, get into the rhythm of it. And, you know, what I've always, my little paradigm for it was uh-huh. that Shakespeare and and all writing for the stage yeah. is a combination of three things. Yeah. Uh, the meaning, the emotion, and the music. Uh-huh. The meaning is simply making it comprehensible. Yeah. And that's not easy with Shakespeare. Right. Because you have to get an extremely willing audience. Yeah. That has some... Uh, but it's surprising. It's amazing how untutored people can actually be swept away by it. Sure, the emotion is just the emotion of the characters, the interaction of Iago and Othello and Desdemona. Yeah, and the music is the extraordinary sound of the language of the language, which yeah. is why we are still quoting it. Which right. is why Ian McKellen sat here and and he and, can do it. And sort of dazzled. I think you. he did. He did a piece that was about immigrants. I think. From, yes, right. From Thomas. He, is it from Moore. What is it? It was called? a sort of discovered piece yeah, of yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Thomas Moore. It was Thomas a Moore, play right. about Thomas Moore. Yeah, he did it right there, as close as you are to me. Yeah. Just look at me right in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how often do you do Shakespeare? Rarely. Yeah. Uh, I did King Lear a few years ago. You were in, King Lear? In Central Park. That's which a lot. A fantastic experience. And I did Malvolio with the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2007. Uh huh. But before then, I had not done Shakespeare since I was a kid. Since, well, I think 1975, I was Laertes in Hamlet in the park. I, I don't know. Other things come along. You sure. know, I'm well, what did you learn from Lear? I mean, what was your experience? Because that's one of those things where an actor is ready to take it on. You have to mm-hmm. be a certain age, and then it will reveal itself to you. What, yes. was, what was revealed to you, John, from Lear? What, what did you come out of it feeling different about? Oh, I just it just felt incredible to finally stand and deliver. Yeah. Uh, that language is titanic. Yeah. And the emotions are... are are huge, especially for an old man. Yeah. And it's true. You have to be old enough to play it, but you also have to be young enough to play it because it's so incredibly demanding. Yeah. And I did it on the young end. I think I was 69 years old. I know. Wasn't Olivier near death when he did yeah. it? Yeah. And and McKellen is doing it for the second time in about 15 years, I guess last year. 
he did it. Well, you're one of those guys too that's always seemed to be somewhat you know middle aged your entire life. Yes, I I, I remember <laughs> auditioning for a director named Stephen Porter in New York. Yeah. I think probably before I had a New York job. Yeah, and I was. I was auditioning for the young romantic character uh -huh. secondary role in yeah. a Moliere play. Yeah. And he said, you know, you're going to grow into yourself as an actor. Yeah. He, he said basically <laughs> what you just said. I've always been old. <laughs> I and didn't say I, old. I, I, think that, I think that comes from growing up doing, I mean, I did do a huge amount of Shakespearean acting as a kid right up until I was like 19, 20 Because your old. dad would throw you in stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, including when I was a little boy playing mustard seed in Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, was there tr when you did that, like, uh, y like having this? Ex like, it seems like your your father must have been a passionate guy. Yeah, was he? he, he well, he, he certainly was when it came to putting on plays. Right. Yeah, but a in, man in, of tremendous passion. But at home, a little detached. Oh, he was very sweet. Yeah, he was just a sweet and genial kind <laughs> yeah. of calm guy. But yeah. boy. You see him play these bravura roles in Shakespeare. Oh, and they all came him. out? I used to imitate him for my friends in grade school. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> your dad acting. You would imitate your dad yes. acting. Yeah, playing Stefano in The Tempest, you know, the comic drunkard. Uh-huh. And he, he really was, opened up, huh? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Would, did any of your siblings get into the business? Well, both my sisters were teachers. Yeah. But they did a huge amount of theater in the schools. Uh-huh. In fact, my older sister, Robin... She became uh, the arts administrator of the whole uh, unified school district here in Los Angeles, crea oh, really? creating arts programs, including theater programs for kids. Oh, that's noble. It was noble, and it was a huge success until 2008. when They took the money away? All the money went out. So she, her job became supervising the dismantling of the programs oh, that she had created. Heartbreaking. One of those real tragedies. That's where they decided to take the money from. Well, you know? it tends to be the first thing to go because it's it's not, to to all appearances, it's not the thing that leads to academic success and career success. Might lead to a decent children. It, it, it feeds the soul. It's yeah. the other half of an education. Well, that seems to be part of your life now. You, I mean, you do a lot of stuff for the kids. Uh, yeah. 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 Th thank you for noticing. <laughs> That's sort of my hidden career. Fly, yeah. Flying under the radar. Well, well, let's go back. So when you're a kid, you, are you just picking up acting by being around it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I loved the whole atmosphere. Uh, me and my siblings and even some of my best friends. Yeah. We, we considered these young actors in their mid-20s and early 30s our, our best friends. You know, well, that's interesting. Just... So you had this input from these young people who are in that, that zone of self-discovery. In what years was this? In the early 70s? Uh, principally the late 50s, early 60s. Okay, so the, uh, the culture hadn't broken up yet, but uh, in the sense of like uh, people doing their own thing, man. Well, almost. <laughs> Yeah, I mean... I, well, I guess my question I, is, were these guys kind of like uh, these men and women that, you know, were, were sort of mentoring you just by proximity, were they a wild bunch? Not really. Mm -hmm. I mean, no more than most actors are. Uh, you know, they're young tearaways. They're, yeah. They had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, but they, no, it was not, the revolution had not arrived. Right. Uh, in those years. Right. Uh, 
um, you know, th- when I started acting seriously for my dad at 18, 19, that yeah. was literally in 63, 64. Right. And that was just before the deluge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but you felt it coming? Did you, like, was it? No, no. It, 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 we, we were in this little extraordinary little bubble. Right. Everything was about about Shakespeare, right. about acting. Yeah. And, and so no, so you're just picking up pointers? Yeah, how do you learn to act at that point? Like, I mean, like you know, you, it, it was not, I was not, I certainly didn't intend to be an actor. I didn't want to be an actor. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was an artist. I was, I was a very serious artist. Painter? I painter and printmaker. Uh-huh. And I intended to in do high school. that in high school. Yeah. Very serious. Well, I was going to commuting from Princeton, New Jersey yeah. into the Art Students League to draw nude not nude models. What's the Art know, Students League? In New York. Oh yeah. It's a great old institution on fifty seventh. Still Street. around? Oh yeah. 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 And they just went to, what do you do? Take classes there? Yeah. Or you... Yeah. I mean I took a sort of teenagers uh drawing and watercolor yeah. class with a bunch of really good uh School of Visual Arts yeah. type in New York City kids. So that was uh, that was the goal to. But well, you're always going to be an point, artist. And yeah. you know, I just I did lots. I did woodcuts and yeah. uh, and I had extremely good public school art classes back yeah. in those days. Yeah, but I went to Harvard. Yeah, mainly because I got into Harvard. It's which was if you wanted if you seriously wanted to be a painter, that was the completely wrong thing to do. Well, because uh, you don't study yeah. art at Harvard. Had your family gone to Harvard? No, you just no. were smart. Guy. I just got in. Yeah, I had had such a unique childhood. I suppose. Uh huh. <laughs> I was such an oddity, uh, and I was, you know, I acted and I, I painted. Uh, I was an interesting kid. Yeah, and what was Harvard? What year was that? In, at Harvard? I started in '63, graduated uh-huh. in '67. Uh huh. And as soon as I got there, I fell in with the theater gang, and it was all extracurricular. You didn't study it, right? But but there were tremendously talented kids. And uh, was it like was the Hasty Pudding doing things? I or? the Hasty Pudding was kind of beneath my dignity. Oh, right. I was a very pretentious and uh, <laughs> woodcutter. I was an es- uh, es- esthete. Yeah. I was playing Tartuffe. And, uh-huh. what, what was the was it a it was a troupe of non theater major actor. Yeah, and there was yeah. no theater major. We just ran off and did our thing. And but sure at least two thirds of my waking hours yeah. were spent and not just uh theater, but I directed operas and uh at Harvard? At Harvard I I was the president of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. I uh, did patter songs in like six G and S operettas. Uh-huh. It was just an this Four years of just exuberant, fervent, unsupervised creative activity for a young performer. And what uh, were you actually majoring in? English history and literature. And uh, did you do well? I did fine. <laughs> yeah. So, I, but so you, I guess they're connected. You know. Oh, you know? they're definitely connected. Uh, but I went off from Harvard. I went right to London on a Fulbright grant to study acting at Lambda. Uh-huh. I mean, I was already. I could have gone right into the profession, but I, for one thing, I wanted to go to England. Yeah, I'd never been to England. And before. and the rep American repertory was not in no. Harvard's it was not. Yet. It was not a. Pro- there was no professional troupe in that Loeb Drama Center. It was all students. It was so our you, big club. But you had a stage. We had a stage. Beautiful facilities. We had professional supervisory staff. Yeah. 
a staff designer, a staff tech director. Oh, really? Director. So they gave you all that. So they encouraged they it. They gave us, although we had, we stood in and, and, and worked. Yeah. We, we, in fact, we we spurned their advice. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We, we, we were really arrogant little pricks. Yeah. Back in those well, that, days. I mean, well, I mean, I, I think that Harvard... That's not unusual. No, that's it's a it's an abiding characteristic of <laughs> yeah, Harvard grads. I, I think, yeah, it's, a, it's part of the application process. <laughs> yes, that's how right. they decide whether you're right for the school. Or not. <laughs> Just yeah. how arrogant are you? Exactly. <laughs> so where so you you got a Fulbright to go to England mm-hmm. and study at what which which place? At Lambda, which is, stands for what? London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. It's one of the three or four kind of pillars of the community. The over big there. one. There's, one of the there's big Rada, ones. Lambda, Central, and uh, what's the uh, difference? Uh, well, Lambda's the best. <laughs> uh, no, they, they actually there's very much a traditional academic training in England. There, yeah. al- there always has been certain basic things you study. Like Rada is the one with the Royal Charter. Oh. It's and it has had all sorts of major, you know, the late. Albert Finney yeah. as of yesterday. Uh, he yeah. was a Rada grad. You know so that guy? I never met Albert Finney. No. He did some good work. I exchanged wonderful letters with him, but oh, I never nice. met him. And Tom Courtney and oh, all, yeah. all, all these. Uh, Lambda it, was always regarded as sort of the proletarian uh, alternative to Rada, but now their status is absolutely the, the same. And uh, Lambda is an incredible institution. So you're coming in with a lot of Shakespearean experience. Yeah, but I haven't put it to work much. Right. You know, just a couple of productions over the years. And when you say academic in terms of the training, what is that like what does that mean? How they start you out? What do you gotta Oh more in sword I, fighting and dancing? Absolutely. Sword fighting, historic dance, uh, stage movement, uh, voice diction and yeah. different classes for for diction and vocal projection. Yeah. Uh and so and and a lot of uh, scene work, a lot of Shakespeare, Chekhov, Shaw. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was a an old, it was a classical training. You know, my our All right. our Lambda has this D group, this one year group. Yeah, which sort of compacts the entire three or four years. Is that what you did? That's what I did, and then extended the grant for another year. And did what? Hung around London. You know, it was an incredible time, end of the '60s. So that's when it all breaks open. It was breaking open then, for sure. And and what, and, and and the theater was incredible back then. This yeah. was when Peter Brook was doing. He was a young man, and yeah, Peter Hall was the director of the National Theater, and Trevor uh, Nunn became the youngest director ever of the RSC. So you're just hanging out, and you're going to those things. Going to everything. Like, yeah. Like and and you know the the school was nine to five every day. It was really hard work. Yeah, uh, and then the second year when I was no, I'd completed that one year program. I just, I basically, it was Vietnam time, and I was I wanted to hang on to my federal grant as long as I could to stay out of the war. Right, and I said, renew my grant, and I'll find something to do. And I worked that kept as, you out of the war up to a point, and then at a certain point, I was drafted anyway. You were, yeah. And what happened? Uh, I just got out of it, pure acting. 
<laughs> it was, that's what it was like as back in those days. As if your life depended on it. As if our lives depended so, on th- it. So with the federal grant, you, you were somewhat protected because they weren't going after people who were engaged at that level? Well, it was, if you stayed in school, okay. you, were, you were protected up to a point. It was just after I got out of the draft that the draft lottery came in. Oh, so, okay. It was so. an incredible, intense year, that particular year. 69? 1968-69. If you think about watershed sort of benchmark years in American history, 68 yeah. was right up there. I mean, that's the year that Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy yeah. were assassinated in the Democratic Convention. Convention, right. And Nixon beating Humphrey and Watergate, all, all the seeds of what, well, Watergate was four years later. But there I was in England for two years thinking, a lot of the time thinking, what am I doing here when the country's going all to hell? Did you feel, was it a similar feeling to what we're feeling now? Everybody thought the center was not holding, that the whole country was falling apart back in those days. Uh, I mean, there was a tremendous anti-war and anti-draft movement. I graduated from Harvard, and literally everybody I know found a way to get out of the draft. So you're in and, England, and you're going to theater, and you're seeing all this great stuff, and how do you know you got drafted? Oh, I got a draft notice from my draft board in Trenton, New Jersey. They didn't know I was in England. Yeah, and who they forwarded it along, your folks did? Yeah, or? my folks forwarded it, and I wrote back and said, well, I, you know, I'm, you can't draft me. I'm, on a here, I'm here on a federal grant. Yeah. And they said, no, we're drafting you. <laughs> uh, so I went off to a, a, physic, a draft physical at, yeah. a, at an Air Force base, a, an RAF Air Force base where there was a U.S. presence. Yeah. And a bunch of Air Force guys. Yeah. Basically, said you don't want to go. <laughs> you don't want to go. All right. Really? I mean, they they yeah, had lucky. they had no dog in the fight. Right. It was Army versus Air Force. Right. Like, so like a football game. So uh, <laughs> so you just went there and you didn't have to it act was, crazy or. I just basically acted like what I was. I just amplified it. Yeah, which was what I just said. I'm. Uh, I I have a pathological fear of conflict. Uh-huh. You know, I had I had actually attempted to get out of the draft as a conscientious objection sure. because I objected to right. the war. Right. But they had they had completely discarded that. Yeah, that 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 wasn't working. That was anymore. all like a written application yeah, that was right. rejected. Right. So yeah. I didn't even attempt that. So you didn't have to cry or shit your I pants. I did cry. I did, did cry. I fainted when they drew my blood. I felt so ashamed of myself for doing that. Well, it was it was like I was acting. Yeah. But I wasn't acting for the right reasons, you know. It's I I wasn't acting for an audience and telling a story. Right, but you feel you don't have any regrets about that though, do you? I think I've lived a uh, I sure, I thought that regret has stayed with me. Y- you know the that moment for young men, the late 60s, is like a third rail of, a, of American society. You yeah. rarely get guys to tell the story of how they got out of the draft uh-huh. because there is a, there's a lingering shame to that, I think. Uh, and yet back in those days, you would get stoned and tell your hilarious story to everybody. Right. It was like Alice's Restaurant. Right. You know, the big... 
that big hit song, that big Arlo Guthrie sure, saga was sure. all about pretending to be crazy to get out of the draft and yeah. how it didn't work. Right. And he got out of the draft anyway because uh, he had he had thrown garbage in the wrong place right. a, a year before and they saw that he had a, a record. A record you know? yeah. That was a, cla- a classic story. Yeah. But we all had a comic story, like right. a stand-up comedy routine. Sure. Unless you hadn't gone through the agony quite yet. Right. Up until then, you were just a nervous wreck. And afterwards, you had your war story too, except that it was an anti-war story. Yeah, but it's interesting that the shame it sort of lingers because you, you, you didn't man up or, or, or that. There's some element of that. I mean, I remember I worked with a wonderful actor named Dennis Arndt. Uh, he's just a terrific guy. And we, we did a film called Distant Thunder, which was not a successful film. Mm-hmm. We were both playing Vietnam, yeah. Vietnam bush vets. Uh-huh. We shot it up in Vancouver. And Denny and I went and actually hung out with these bush vets in the, uh, the Olympic Peninsula. What's a bush vet? Guys who just went to live in the woods, veterans who oh. were, whose lives were so wrecked oh. that they basically- Went off the grid. Went off the grid. Yeah. And we hung out with these guys for three or four days and went to their, to their counseling meetings. Yeah. And, oh, God, it was so... And I, I felt I'm just acting the part. I yeah. feel th- like such a fraud. Yeah. And then he had been a chopper pilot in Vietnam. He'd gone through the whole drill. Yeah. And I said... Denny, I didn't go, and I can't get up interacting with these guys. I can't get over this sense of shame. Yeah. And he said, John, I went to Vietnam, yeah. and I can't get over my sense of shame. We're all casualties of that war. And it's it's hard to bring that back to life for people who aren't, you know, yeah. over 70 years old. Right. And who, who lived through all that. Yeah. It's heavy because... Even in retrospect, obviously, I don't under—I can't understand, but I empathize because I found that you know moving. But like, even knowing that the war was, you know, unwinnable and a, and a disaster, and and, mm-hmm. and based on and yet insanity, these, you still like you know like I. I and yet these guys went, and they were they went because they felt they they had to serve their country, and yeah. they made colossal sacrifices. And they want and, they want to go to jail. Yeah, and they want to leave uh, the country. No, it's uh, it's heavy. It's a very heavy thing, and and back in those days, it was, it dominated everybody's uh, men and women. You know, women who felt the terrible guilt of their boyfriends. Yeah, uh, I've had that conversation with women my age about uh, who of their boyfriends who bailed, who, who, ba- who bailed or didn't bail. Yeah. Or who, I was in London with a lot of American guys who yeah. were just basically self-exiles, and they didn't know how the, what they were going to do. They, they, were, know, they were hiding out from the war. They didn't know how they were going to get home. When did you go home? I got home at the end of two years uh-huh. of study and went to work for my dad. In the theater? Yeah. doing. You were acting for your father. I acted and directed and so designed. See, so that's great that you had this dad... Yeah, <laughs> I had a fabulous right. head start. I worked for him for a year. Hands on. And then I said, no, Dad, it's time to move, that I got to go and do this myself. Where'd you go? To New York and was out of work for two years, you know? Ironically, I was hired to direct. Yeah. I was well on my way to being a director, not an actor. Yeah. 
In fact, Baltimore Center Stage even offered me a job Oof, as yeah. uh, associate artistic director. Yeah. You uh, could have been you could have had a career as a regional theater director. That's John. right. That's right. <laughs> you could have And I accepted the job because I had nothing else. Yeah. And then two weeks later I got the job I always wanted. Which, which was, was a a year's residency at Long Wharf Theater back when they had a resident company. Where was that? New Haven. So okay, so that was your dream was you were really locked I, into the theater world. That was my world. Regional theater was what I did. As a matter of fact, I remember my Fulbright grant application. They asked the question, "What will you do with the, yeah. the work you study on yeah. this grant?" And I said, "American Repertory Theater." Uh, but the second show I did at Long Wharf, uh, a British play with its American premiere called "The Changing Room," uh -huh. about a rugby team and its changing room. Yeah. It got a lot of national press. Yeah. It was a terrific production. It came intact to Broadway, to 45th Street, and I had my Broadway debut in that. You know, I never thought I'd get to Broadway. Yeah. And two weeks later, yeah. two weeks after our opening night, I won a Tony Award for it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> it was like back in those days, there was no lag time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that... Oh my God! I, that I am crazy. the the actor who won a Tony after the shortest time <laughs> after his debut. Probably a lot of uh, a lot of bitter actors, a lot of angry, <laughs> I know, resentful. Well, actors. Well, it was a cast of twenty two men, and yeah. uh, not they weren't entirely yeah. celebrating <laughs> when I won the best supporting actor. I would imagine the entire theater community <laughs> in New York was like, "Who the fuck is this?" Exactly. Kid? Yeah, you. <laughs> certainly, how I feel most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> So, th so now you're off and running then, huh? Yeah, back then. I really haven't been s seriously out of work since then. And no, but, was, but how was... long was the Focus Theater? When did, the, the when did you realize, like, I'm going to do movies? Were you always auditioning for films and television? No, it's, uh, I mean, uh, in the 70s, I, that was in 1973. Yeah. And for about 10 years, I did, like, 80% plays i did 12 broadway plays uh-huh and a few movies i was in all that jazz oh yes i was in a you were the producer or what yeah yeah you, the director i'm amazed you even remember it was a little, little part hell of a movie though and a great movie there was a crew like there were two or three of the producer types yeah, exactly right? in fact so fossey even hired genuine people to be oh you were the I, more you were sort of like the the arrogant the, the, sh shit yes right 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 and right. Yeah, yeah. i was sort of the embodiment of of uh, all of fossey's rivals in the right business. but he, the, did you you played in another director correct or was it yeah, a pretty yeah right. a rival director right rival director and, i remember and everybody speculated who is he who is he i wore sunglasses on the top of my head right exactly. which is what hal prince had always done you know and but in directing my scenes, yeah. Fosse referenced Gower Champion, uh -huh. Mike Nichols, uh -huh. Michael Bennett, and Hal Prince. So he, he was sort of an embodiment of all all the people he was jealous of. Just this of. contemptible, arrogant, <laughs> yeah, like, that's and right. every, everything, every every part was, of your body was just sort of like. Yeah. <laughs> it was he, really he, he was, and, and Fosse just loved all that. <laughs> he was. A, he must have been great to work he with. He was fantastic. Yeah. And so, okay, so you did in the seventies. You did all that jazz, mm -hmm. and you did. Uh, when did you do Blowout? Is that ah, yeah, Blowout. Well, I had known uh, De Palma. Yeah. When we were both students, he was a student at Columbia, and I was at Harvard. And how do you know him? 
we met through a we we actually I, I created a, a sort of summer theater workshop uh-huh. uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, yeah, I think the year before my uh, the summer before my senior year of college, with a bunch of Columbia guys, a few of us Harvard guys, and a few of us Columbia guys. Uh-huh. And Brian was a good friend of those guys. Yeah, and he came down to see. I remember we were doing a Moliere evening, two, uh-huh. three Moliere one acts, mm-hmm. and I was acting my head off. And I heard this wild, like banshee laugh from the audience. And the audiences were not big yeah. audience. They were not big crowds. Yeah, uh, We would fill the, the theater about 25% full. It, the whole enterprise was a huge flop. Yeah, But I heard this screaming laugh that yeah. was Brian De Palma <laughs> yeah. and, and and in in many ways he sort of godfathered my entry into movies he recommended me to the first movie I was ever in yeah and then shortly after he hired me for Obsession yeah and then I never I op- saw Obsession you should see it it's it's classic old time De Palma I mean De Palma's stuff I've seen Early most on. of the movies. Have you seen Hi, Mom and Greetings? I don't know. Those are her, his wild... Those were when oh, he wow. was... Oh, wow. It's written by Paul Schrader. Yeah. I mean, Why those I guys... I seen it? You got to see them because they were very radical films and De Niro was in them. Yeah. He was in uh, uh, Hi, Mom, I think, and Greetings. Wow. I'm so mad. But you got to see them because those were his... Uh, that's when he was a real re- renegade. Yeah. And then I thought, of, well, Blowout was well. I mean, then he became the the master of the macabre. You know, he sort of embraced suspense and horror, <laughs> right? Because right. he always loved that. And then I did Raising Cain. Yeah, I saw that. That was nineteen ninety. But Blowout was great. Like, yeah, that was a great a, one. It was one of his really good ones. But he, I don't know what you know, what the sort of uh, how he sees his interpretation of other movies. But he clearly does that on purpose. Oh yeah, yeah. He he he. he, he it's not like he was stealing. He right. Always considered it both an homage and a kind of secret in joke. Yeah. He, he delighted in all that. And what did what about you playing like you know evil fuckers? Well, uh, Brian always. I always was curious why why he. Uh, <laughs> He thought of me as, as, in fact, there's this wonderful documentary of Brian. Yeah. It's nothing more than an interview with yeah. a lot of cuts to his. And he himself said, I don't know why. I always thought John Lithgow would be a good villain. Uh-huh. I, I don't know what. I, he was bemused by that. I think it's because he loves the idea of someone who's apparently innocent being di- uh-huh. diabolical. And I'm your man for that. Well, you've done it a lot. Yeah. Right? You're, well, it's a great way of surprising people. You know, when they expect one thing yeah. and it turns out to be another, I mean, that's almost the the, the essence of every kind of drama. Right. You know, surprise yeah. him, surprise him. But then, uh, well, but like, but luckily, because you work so much, you're not one of those people that when you do a thing like Terms of Endearment, where people are like, no, he's, something's, he's going to be evil at some point. This yeah. is going to turn. <laughs> I've, saw, right. I've seen him in the last two movies. He's, yeah. Someone's going to get a knife in him. <laughs> but it, can, it goes the other way around. I do Third Rock from the Sun for a few years. Yeah. And I'm the last person they think will be evil. Right. I'm just this clueless doofus, and then I do Dexter, you know, <laughs> yeah. where I couldn't be more evil. And a lot of the villain parts I've played yeah. 
have a double identity. I, I love duality, where there's two completely opposite sides to a character. Yeah. In fact, about five or six times, I've played my own identical twin. twin you know? yeah, yeah, that, I mean, that must be a testament to your to your range and skill as an actor that people will do that. That how many people could they really have do that effectively? Obviously, several different directors said, "No, John's the guy for this." Uh, well. <laughs> I don't know. By now, I've gone in so many crazy different directions. Uh, you know, when Stephen Daldry yeah. asked me to play Winston Churchill, I was just, uh, I was astonished. And everybody I knew was astonished. Really? But I think Why? Daldry so had just, had, well, he'd just seen me do enough unlikely surprising things. He thought, uh, yeah. What a, what a fun idea! Of course, or he could do this. <laughs> <laughs> and you won a did what you won the award for that, right? I won a few awards for that. Yeah, uh, an Emmy award. Actually, Albert Finney, rest his soul, won an Emmy for playing Churchill too. Uh, Churchill is a and, and didn't Oldman an just Oldman get an Oscar? Oscar? It's a good prize-winning uh, character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> he would have been very pleased, I think. <laughs> I think he would too. And you've you've have an Oscar? No, no, no. I've been nominated twice, and and I actually presented one of the nominated films when Billy Crystal was an Oscar uh, host. And right. he, he he took his eye off the teleprompter for uh-huh. for one second. Yeah, and he introduced me as a two time Oscar winner, John <laughs> Lithgow. <laughs> yeah. and I've this is the first time I've ever uh, disabused people of that. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder where that came into his head or how that came in. You've won quite a few Emmys. Yeah, six. And do you have them all out? No, I don't. I, I, uh, to tell you the truth, they're they're in storage. I I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I've got a lot of these things. Yeah, Yeah, and it's like. There are too many of them to put on display. Sure, it's, all the different awards. It's, it's the Midwesterner in me. You, you, Where do you, you live? You live here? Yeah, I live here and yeah. have an apartment in New York. So, Oh, that's nice. I'm a sort of bi-coastal character. So, so uh, moving through the movies, though, like like I remember like you're one of those guys that was sort of in a lot of things always. Like I feel like I grew up always seeing you somewhere. Yeah, like, I, like, like a the, bad penny. No. It keeps on showing up. <laughs> But like the Twilight Zone movie, that was great. Yes, yes, that it's was a great, great role. You're fabulous, and we're f- working for George Miller. Yeah, uh, you know of uh, Mad Max. Yeah, Fury, Fury Road. He directed your episode. He directed my episode, and yeah. it was the first I'd done a few movies before then. Yeah, including right. Garp. Sure. But until then, uh-huh. nobody, no film director had as- ever asked me to do more. They'd all asked me to do less. But George, nothing was ever enough. More. He says, I, I, I want to see your face crack. You know, it was just <laughs> With great. Terror. And uh, it was incredibly liberating. That was the first time I brought all my uh, sort of bravura yeah. theater chops to, to the movies. Really? Yeah. So, like, everything you earn. <laughs> yeah, bam. How big can I get? You wanted it, you got it. Because you are sweating and freaking out. Oh, yeah, out. total freak out. Oh, yeah. through nonstop. It was like uh, a 20-minute a, a heart attack. Oh, man. It was really fun. Did you work with him again ever? 
Uh, not George, no, no, no. And it's a, I, I loved him. In I, terms uh, of endearment, like you were the sweet guy. Yeah, yeah. It, that guy was worked a, at the bank. The, yeah, the, yeah. The, it was about a two or three year stretch, which was I came out to L. A. When I met my wife, I came to L. A. We got married. So I, you left New York. You left the theater, the ongoing theater of the seventies. Yeah. And came out to L. A. On what movie did you re- decide? Like I got to go to L. A. Well, I decided because of Mary. Uh, when we got married, I moved in with her. She was a tenured professor and out here. Yeah, at UCLA. Uh-huh. And I couldn't. That was for uh, you've been married twice. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. The, she's my second yeah. wife, and uh, and I just uh, it was just sort of a time for change in my sure. life. I guess. Yeah, I moved out. And moved in with her, and bam, 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 bam. I did uh, Garp, Twilight Zone, yep. Terms of Admiring, Footloose, yep. Buckaroo Banzai, oh, yeah. all in the space of of about Buckaroo two and Bon-Zai. a half years. And they were all wildly different character parts. But popular movies in different ways. Yeah. Some of them are big hit movies, right? Terms and well, Footloose. Terms, for Buckaroo sure. Buckaroo Banzai, though, had a kind of a cult following. It still does, yeah. 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 No, uh, what is it? Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, and <laughs> laugh while you can, monkey boy. Yeah, that was that's my. It. <laughs> <laughs> I wish your listeners could see your laugh. <laughs> right know now, my your laugh. smile. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten that one. Yeah, monkey pretty boy. Mild. Monkey boy. <laughs> that, was, I think, that was like a meme, and like before the internet, like that was something people were saying all That's of a sudden right. because know. of that guy, yeah. Monkey Boy. It was the most lunatic character ever. I loved it. 1984. That's right. It was just because I remember that being around. You know, yeah. you, know, you know how things are around. What was your Monkey Boy line? Laugh a while you can, Monkey Boy. <laughs> <laughs> you get a few of those uh, I once went to my, I did an assembly at, yeah. at my at my son's school when he was in yeah. high school and I did my own uh, uh, it was such a self-congratulatory thing to do I gave myself a, a life achievement award Oh, and I provided all. Did my... they ask you to do that? No, no, no. Oh, I, I, it just... was a joke. Oh, okay. I said, I instead of having clips, I yeah. just quoted all my great yeah, one yeah. lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had a whole bunch of them. What's some of the other ones? Well, Roberta Muldoon said, "I had a great pair of hands." You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> laugh while you can, monkey boy. Yeah. And and in terms of endearment, you must be from New York. <laughs> was, you know, I gave the Harry and the Hendersons howl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was long predated, uh, hello, Dixter Morgan. Mm. You know, that became a... a yes. So you did Third Rock for years. Yeah, that was six years. But you did a lot of television here and there, a lot of the things that people do. They show up and wave and make a joke and yeah. whatever and then go away. Yeah. But, uh, but Third Rock was like, that's a lot, right? Yeah, we did 138 episodes. And had a fantastic time. I mean, it was really a deliriously fun show. People must know you for that, right? Probably. You played H.L. Mencken? Now that you mention it, I did play H.L. Mencken. <laughs> no, on uh, Ken Burns. Uh, he, I'm one of the, his go-to voices. I've been on four or five of Ken Burns' documentaries. You didn't do the Vietnam one, though, did you? That was no, Peter no. Coyote, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I would always do little characters. characters, little letters being read. I was on the Roosevelt one. Voice work's fun, right? Well, it's no different from this, I, Mark. Yeah, but, but <laughs> We're you, doing voice work right now. But you get to do... No, but you know... No, you it's, get, it's fun. Uh, yeah. 
it's a lark. I yeah. loved Chris Rock's whole riff on yeah. on voicing animated films at the what Oscars. Oh. It's just, you know, when I when I did the voice of Lord Farquaad yeah. in in Shrek, yeah, I did it about four years before the movie came out, yeah, uh, and it was this whole new technology. Shrek, yeah. was right? A very innovative film and. I would go in and lay down some, you know, yeah. Lord Farquaad yeah. and then go away for about six months and they'd come in to have me do another 15 minutes to do another little yeah. scene. I maybe dropped in three or four times over a couple of years. Right. I, it put it all together. I spent about 45 minutes on it. <laughs> right. And it lasts forever. four years later, out comes this phenomenal film. Yeah, and it's my voice. I've long since forgotten ever saying these things. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's and, and there it, it re, it's forever now. Yeah, yeah. Who like my my producer uh, Brendan? He's got a, a son. A couple years ago, when his kid was six, his wife got tickets to see Peter and the Wolf at Carnegie Hall. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And when she told him, he was not happy because he's he's sensitive. He gets worried about large places and big sounds, yeah, so yeah, it's caused yeah. him anxiety. And he said, no, I'm not going. <laughs> Throw the tickets in the trash. And she says, but John Lithgow <laughs> is, is going to be the narrator. And there's a long pause. And he says, okay, I'll go. <laughs> no, this is my, these are my people. <laughs> the kids? Uh, uh, yes, for about a, like a two-year window of opportunity. Then yeah. they, they grow up and think I'm an asshole. But uh, <laughs> no, but I, I I've spent a lot of time entertaining like the three to seven year old set. Yeah. When, yeah. when did that happen? Was that of your own making? Because you've written books. You've done... yeah yeah. It's it's a very nice thing. I, it mainly came, you know, I had a baby sister ten years younger than me. Uh-huh. There were four of us siblings. I was the third oldest, and she was ten years younger than me. Yeah. And I was like her third parent, right, Sarah Jane, and yeah. I always entertained her, right, and always the main go-to babysitter. Uh huh. And then my own kids came along, and I just developed songs. I taught myself the guitar just to sing sing kids songs to yeah. my kids, and then it was classrooms and benefits for the schools and assemblies and for their schools or for yeah, and yeah. then you became known to well, the, I, as a guy who did that. Not really until yeah. Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah. And I, at that point, it was like somebody suggested you do something with your kids stuff. Yeah. And I made a home v- VCR cassette, yeah. video cassette. And then I made an album. Yeah. With some terrific musicians and a great record producer. And it-, it Of your was, songs. Of my songs. Yeah. And also old novelty standards. Yep. Uh, Cab Calloway and uh, Betty Boop and mm-hmm. Shirley Temple songs yeah. as retooled as kids songs sure. with great old time jazz orchestration and I literally called information for Carnegie Hall yeah, and dialed Carnegie Hall and told them I have an album yeah, I want to send it to you and I want to give a concert with a big orchestra yeah. Six months later, you know. Come on. I had my Carnegie Hall debut. I performed there three or four times. I, I've I've actually done kids' concerts with about a dozen major U.S. orchestras. Huh. Big hour-long concerts, mostly my own songs. And you sing them? I sing them. I could sing you one right now. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Wait, no, I... I sang, uh, uh, I'll sing you one. Uh, I got two dogs, Fanny and Blue. 
Bet you kinda wish you had two dogs too. Fanny's all white. Blue's kinda gray. They never ever fight and they never run away. They're not too smart, but they're loyal and true. There's nothing I'd trade for my Fanny and Blue, etc. <laughs> I mean that They love it. Yeah, they go nuts. And they're very interactive concerts. I haven't actually had time to do this for about three or four years, but I used to do it a lot. Yeah. And it was always this wonderful counterpoint to yeah. entertaining adults. Right. Because kids are electric. I mean, they're an incredibly difficult audience, but if you can control them yeah. and stimulate them and then calm them down, right. get them to really listen and, yeah. and, and hold their attention for an entire hour get them squealing with joy and yeah. then totally silent. Right. It's a fantastic <laughs> feeling because I always say, you know, what an actor really wants is to achieve is suspension of disbelief. Yeah. You never get that entirely with an adult audience. Right. They always know they're watching a fiction. Right. But kids, yeah, <laughs> they haven't figured anything out yet. You they think, my God, I'm seeing the real thing. So, <laughs> and they have no irony at all. Yeah, they just completely buy it. They're not they buy cynical. it all. Yeah, so it's they're excited just, to buy it. They're so excited, and and it must feel great. It feels great, and yeah. then they they grow up and turn their backs on me oh. until they discover me in Dexter. Right, no. and, or or they discover you when they're teaching their own kids stuff. That's right. That's no, the, but I mean the most wonderful thing is to hear parents say, you know, their kids love my albums. Or, yeah, or it's a it's a wonderful or or my books. Yeah, because that stays that's evergreen, man. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like you, you know the those songs, like even the ones that you chose to do that aren't your songs, that you know them for a reason. They never go away. Yeah, and if yeah. you can make those things that never go away for kids, generations yeah. of them, it's an amazing thing. It was great fun, also, sort of going through old Tin Pan Alley because mm -hmm. back in the '30s, these ridiculous Inka Dinka Do, oh and sure, yeah, Mercy Dotes, the, yeah, they wrote these idiotic songs for commercial adult consumption yeah. but they're wonderful songs for kids i mean when i was a kid danny Kaye was this huge thing sure we loved we had this album that we must have played a million times danny at the palace uh-huh doing all these and, I, and i've done several of them on my album oh you have yeah danny he was a song and dance what was this big movie danny Hans hands christian anderson oh and yeah, yeah the court jester and god you mentioned that to anyone under 50 now and they have to really struggle. I can picture his face. I mean, I like He's it very was, handsome. He, he was, was younger big. than it was it was I I'm not that old enough to know those things. When I was younger, I, I was very uh, obsessed with old entertainment somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, vaudeville. I mean, yeah. Vaudeville, it's it reemerges in different strains. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, the, uh, it never goes away. It never goes away. You <laughs> Did know? you see that Stan and Ollie movie? No, I you didn't. You should see it. Is it good? It's so good. Yeah, I will. I'm so mad that, that it doesn't seem like a lot of people are seeing it. Well, it's because who knows about Stan and Ollie anymore? But that, but you know that what they look like. That's all we really know. Even, even any generation, right, that has seen those black and whites is the, the, whatever's available when you're yeah. a kid. But maybe you're right. But the, the thing is, is that those two guys, John C. Riley and, um, and Steve, Steve Coogan, Coogan, really, you know, 
give them depth. They, no, they I make, will. Uh, I will see it. They I, make them people, and they're yeah. people in show business, and they're people in a difficult point in show business in their yeah. careers. And it's just such a sweet. Oh, I will movie. watch it. I will watch it. So, what's this play you're doing? Aha, uh-huh. that's the one I'm doing with Laurie Metcalf. It's called Hillary and Clinton. Where is it? Is it New York or here? It'll be on Broadway. Okay. And whose play is that? It's a a wonderful young writer uh, named Lucas Nath, Uh H-N-A-T-H. And he wrote, he's written a lot of plays, but he wrote on Broadway, Doll's House 2, Mm. a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And Laurie played the title role and won the Tony Award for it. Have you worked with her before? She came and did a three-episode arc on Third Rock from the Sun. Okay. It was hilarious. And she was nominated for an Emmy for it as a guest uh, as a guest artist. She's intense, man. She is the greatest actress. Yeah. Getting up on stage with her, I can't wait. Yeah. She is so sharp and <laughs> such an attack. Yeah. And so smart. Yeah. It's really good. And th- the play is really good. What's it about? Well, it's about Bill and Hillary at an... Ex- at a very crucial moment in their history. Uh-huh. It, it, it takes place the night, the day before and the day after the New Hampshire primary in 2008 when she was running not against Trump but against Obama. Yeah. And uh, and it's, it, it's it, in, in a sense, it's kind of like The Crown where there are these very extremely well-known public figures that yeah. everybody's obsessed with but nobody really knows what's inside their lives yeah. their private lives and it's it's a kind of hypothetical and speculative play but mm-hmm. it's a it, this guy is such a tremendous writer it's it, it's got it's got the dramatic structure of an Ibsen play it's a very funny play mm-hmm. but it's got turns of plot that the storytelling is just great they don't they don't write plays like this mm-hmm. anymore i just love it that's great so to play bill clinton how do you not make that a uh, caricature well it's a kind of a deal is made with the audience almost instantly mm-hmm. out comes laurie just as laurie and says basically don't even don't worry we're not even trying to imitate these people mm. it's a it's just an alternate take on them so so i'm not making the slightest effort to look like him or sound like him. Huh. You'll see. You got to see it. It's going to be just tremendous. <laughs> it's a four-character play. Who are the other two characters? I I don't think I'll tell you because one of them's a big surprise. Oh, can't spoil it? No spoilers. That's right. Got it. <laughs> and, uh, well, it sounds interesting. And certainly the, the two of you guys together, that's crazy. That's yeah. gonna be uh, that's gonna be something, and what what uh, are you, what what's this what's the Fox News movie? Ah, well, I'm playing Roger Ailes. How was that playing another monster? Well, it all depends on how you look at him uh, objectively. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was a monster, but uh, whenever Quite I play a whenever I play a monster, I sort of shake hands with sure, him. Sure, you give him and, some yeah yeah. Uh, it's Humanity. A, it's a terrific script by Charles Randolph, who yeah. co-wrote The Big Short. It's directed by Jay Roach, He's a funny. wonderful director. He does good comedy movies, right? And this cast, it's me, but. The other major characters are the women at Fox. Sure. It's really about the women's response mm-hmm. to, to the culture. Who of plays Sega. Megan Kelly again? Megan Kelly is played by Charlize Theron. Oh yeah, and and Nicole Kidman right. plays Gretchen Carlson. 
Margot Robbie, Allison Janney, Connie Britton, Kate McKinnon. It's, it's the most extraordinary powerful. ensemble. Great, great actresses. That's a that is a that's a powerful bunch of women there. And it's such a smart. Pe- I mean, you never know. You're inside it all. But uh, have you uh, seen a cut? No, no. When's it out? Well, you know, it's a very, very glorified independent film. Uh, uh, I don't. It's not a studio film. It's not slated. I don't think it's even titled yet. Uh-huh. But it's really going to be good. I think. Well, it yeah. Certainly felt great acting those scenes, uh, and they're and they're very challenging scenes. There's, you know, you we've been obsessed with the Me Too movement and all, and the downfall of mm-hmm. all these harassers mm-hmm. from the last couple of years. But you never. I I don't think I have seen it accurately portrayed. Uh, I mean, there's no way of accurately uh, recreating what actually happened behind closed doors. Right, but uh, but see, exploring the other side of it. Uh, yes, and, and and in depth, like all of the. Uh, what's most fascinating is all the different reactions of all the different women. Yeah. Because, you know, some people, for all sorts of complex reasons, have to either accommodate or not accommodate, mm-hmm. defy, mm-hmm. or uh, protest, sue, or accept. A- and everyone, everyone in the film faces a deep moral dilemma, including, uh, including Ailes himself, as hmm. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, you know, Connie Britton plays this fascinating part of his wife. Uh, Allison plays his attorney, Susan Estridge, who was a feminist and a great yeah. advocate for women and, yeah. and protecting women. So that's complicated. Complex it's very movie. complex. Uh, it's a complex story. And and the background, of course, is the birth of Fox News. Mm-hmm. Roger Ailes created Fox News, and, and his downfall has all kinds of resonance with what's happening right now. Yeah. Oh, that sounds exciting. It's all done, right? It's all shot. You know, yeah, they're they're cutting it, and Jay's very happy. Oh, good! He sent me an email saying, "Wow, this is really working." So oh, good! That's always good. That's great. I met him on a plane briefly. Yeah. So you're going to do the play that's coming out, and uh, what else? You, that's enough. Huh? I'm writing a book. Really? Yeah. About yourself? No. Oh, good. It's <laughs> no. <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, I've done a couple of those. Um, right? No, I I. Uh, it is so. Uh, it's a project in such infancy. In infancy, yes. I, I hesitate to even talk about it. Wary to talk. It's about satirical it. doggerel verse mm. on the, on on the subject of the Trump administration and all these astounding characters. I mean, if you just look at it, an an actor looking sure. looking at this list of characters, there's about fifty of them mm. who are so unbelievably bizarre. Yeah. Comic, appalling, horrific, the wor- scary. Yeah, the worst. Yeah, the worst. They're, they're, they are. They are almost as if they are satirical characters. Yeah, it's like what's s- doggerel verse? No, well, it's doggerel verse. It's, it's nonsense verse, but oh, okay. it's uh, like Lewis Carroll and sure, uh, Edward, sure. Edward Lear. Oh, so you're going to do one, a funny poetry? It's comic. I to me, the the only way I can deal with my kind of chronic low level depression about the state of this country yeah. is to make some sort of uh, comic comment on it. Yeah, I'm up on it. 
Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm up on the decline. Well, good. Let's, You're let's, up on the decline. Yeah. <laughs> I like that phrase. <laughs> it's not going to last forever. I'm an optimist by nature. Oh, good. I I, uh, I think I am, but I don't know. I, I think it's just a, it's it's some sort of denial thing. Of course it is. And mm. but I, it's, it's we do forget. It's it's almost like you know you can get addicted to a streaming uh, oh, yeah. drama, mm-hmm. you know, created oh, yeah. for Netflix or Amazon. Right. I try to think of this as as the streaming drama of our lives. <laughs> when I think back to my young years, yeah, one of the great villains of my childhood was Richard Nixon. Sure. All through the fifties, yeah, you know, Yellow Springs, Ohio. He was the one of the major. He and Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn. Those were the great boogeymen. Right. As a result. His come down in 1973 or four. Took a while. It took a while, but when it came, it was one of the great <laughs> moments of elation in my childhood. I uh, think I have that coming. Oh, good. I think, I, I think, I think there's a second coming. We all have that coming. <laughs> did, did you go, uh, I read that, that you gave a commencement at Harvard and yeah. you were the first actor to do so? Yes, first and only so far. And, and was that, was that a, a, a big moment or no? Oh, it was wonderful. It yeah. was fantastic. As a matter of fact, I, I used my children's books as kind of the theme. I, I wrote a children's book for the occasion. Uh-huh. It was a lot of fun because that year there had been a kind of outrage. There then President Lawrence Summers had made an offhand comment about women not being suited for science. Oh, right. And it, it was really, it cost him his presidency. There was such an outrage. Yeah. And that outrage was boiling all year long. So I'm convinced they invited me to give the commencement speech because I was the least offensive person they could think of. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I decided to write a children's book for the occasion, to give a boilerplate commencement speech, but end it with something that I had done. Yeah. As I, the, my theme was be creative, be useful, be practical, be, yeah. be generous. And yeah. I said, okay, I'm creative. I've created a book for the yeah. occasion. Practical, it's going to be published. Yeah. Useful, well, it's going to help pour oil on troubled waters here yeah. at Harvard this year. <laughs> uh-huh. It's about a mouse, a little girl mouse named yeah. Mahalia, yeah. who happens to be brilliant at science <laughs> and and it ro- the the ro- the laughter just rolled yeah. across these 20,000 people sitting outside <laughs> in the sunshine yeah. and i then recited this verse uh children's book called mahalia mouse goes to college uh-huh. and it was all about a brilliant little science student who ends uh, up graduating from from harvard yeah and i said i dedicated it to the class of 2005, and all my proceeds went to their class gift. Uh, so I was that was my little homily. Uh, and oh, so you published it? And it, it's published. Uh, get it. it's a terrific book. Oh, good. And I got a standing ovation, and I performed an encore of one of my children's songs. It's <laughs> great. I c- and, and you and you stuck it to the man. I could, well, he was seated right behind me. <laughs> no, but it was very gentle. It, it was. Yeah. Uh, I was not. I was not. Uh, I did not. You didn't. You weren't going like offend this guy. Him. No. Yeah, yeah. But it's like I couldn't let the moment no, pass without giving some nod to 
the thing that had obsessed the campus all year long. And you did it from an, uh, a child's perspective. Yes, right. Which is, you know, which made everybody process it yeah. in that way. Yeah. It wasn't an intellectual thing, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, that's great. Well, it was great talking to you, man. Oh, God, are we done? Yeah, I think so. It's wonderful talking to you, Mark. And you, uh, you're, you're just, you do such great things with this. Oh, I'm I really proud it. to be on it. Oh, thanks. So. <laughs> Good luck with the play. Thank you. Break away. You've got to come see it. You I have will. to promise me you'll come to see it. When I'm going to New York, I want to see a couple plays. I'll see that one. I'm going to see the the uh, the Miller play. Yeah. 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 And I saw, so Tracy's a good friend of yours, huh? We we're new friends. It's weird when you're yeah. at middle age and making friends. Yes. Yeah. We're and I you know I talk about it a lot, but you know we've spent time together. We've gone out and ate, and I've God, seen his plays. He's such a bright man. Yes, yeah, I like making him laugh. He's a good audience for me yeah. somehow. I don't <laughs> I don't know him very well, but I've. I've uh, I saw him at the Steppenwolf years ago in a great he's a good actor. Yeah, he's a terrific actor. Yeah, and his plays are good. This is good. The new one down at the Mark Taylor. Yes, play. I heard you talking about it on. Yeah, I liked year. it. It's a, some it's a, if you're a certain type of uh, fella, it's going to relate to a little hard. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna it's going to resonate with you in ways that are going to make <laughs> you uncomfortable. Well, that's, that's one what, that's one of the things we try to do. That's what theater's for. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks. Man. Great to talk to you. Okay, that was great. I love that guy. And now I will pray. Pray. Fuck my mouth. Jesus, fuck. You know, it's like some days. And now I will play, play. Now I will play, play, play guitar. Play. Oh, God damn it. Play. Here we go.